and welcome to Tax Yak, a Tax Banter podcast. At Tax Banter, we love yakking on about tax, and so we've invited a range of experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Neil Jones, the Managing Director and Senior Tax Trainer with Tax Banter, and your host for today. But rather than hosting, I think we'll just have a conversation. Today, I'll be joined by my colleague at Tax Banter, Senior Tax Trainer, Craig McCormick. Craig, welcome to Tax Shack. Thank you, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, good to have you here. Now, today's Tax Shack, we're going to talk about the non-arms length income rules as they apply to superannuation funds, and in particular, the amendments that government put through in relation to non-arms length expenses. Now, just to probably start the conversation, Craig, why do we have non-arms length income rules in relation to superannuation and the taxation thereof? Uh, yeah, so, so in, in recent times, it's been government policy to uh, put caps on um, contributions into the super funds. And as a result of that, um, people still wanting to maximise their um, super balances have used other means of funds going through. And part of that is in relation to non-arms length transactions, such as um, using private companies and private entities to make contributions into the funds, um, not paying expenses on behalf of the super fund. So all these, these ways of increasing the value of the fund itself. Uh, but as it is a policy intent to restrict uh, contributions going in, um, there are integrity measures placed around to capture um, those non-arms length um, arrangements with your fund. And that makes sense, doesn't it, Craig? And I don't think anyone objects against that policy intention. Uh, there is a concessionally taxed regime applying to superannuation funds. And so if people try to take advantage of that and try to grow their wealth in perhaps contradiction to that policy intent of the capping of contributions and everything else, it's not surprising that we have that integrity rule. And it's always been there. I mean, I go back to the days of Section 273 in the old Act before they modernised it and brought it into the 97 Act. So I think we understand the reason why that provision sits there that to tax some of the income of superannuation funds at a higher rate and not get the concessional rate of 15% on the income. That's right. So, so you go to policy intent, integrity measures, and then next debate would be how far those integrity measures reach into transactions. And I suppose the controversy really started to, to raise its head about uh, non-arms length income and non-arms length expenses when the government introduced rules allowing super funds to borrow. And so the borrowing restriction, when they introduced uh, limited recourse borrowing arrangements that became permitted as a means of growing your wealth, it just became too good to be true. And you know the fact that the super fund could acquire an asset using gearing provided you ticked off a few boxes and you met the rules, just seemed too good an opportunity, didn't it? That's right. As you say, too good to be true. Here's the, all these restrictions placed around and suddenly this opening that says you can, you can fund on, on your own terms a, an asset into your super fund. And as, as the ATO even covers off in, in all the ATO IDs that were introduced around that time, that was a recognition that the law itself does not prohibit a lender from being a related party lender. But of course, the, the integrity is around the arm's length nature of the transaction it's entered into. And the tax office had a number of attempts to crack down on that member funded lower rate interest arrangement. So the initial approach for the tax office was that there was a 
trust distribution from the custodial trustee, that um, nominee, if you like, the, the holding trust, as we required to have under 67A and 67B. So the ATO's initial attack was that it was a discretionary trust distribution and therefore should have uh, gnarly applied to it. Um, that was pretty early on and, and the ATO pretty early recanted from that position. And as you say, they did accept that a member could fund the acquisition of an asset through a limited recourse borrowing arrangement. And we had a couple of IDs released in 2015, one in relation to shares and one in relation to property uh, since being withdrawn. But they actually gave the tax office, you know, the, the green tick. In other words, the ATO was saying, well, yes, you are allowed to do this. But they then got concerned where perhaps when you look at the holistic arrangement of an LRBA that is not on necessarily commercial terms, then the commissioner said, I still want to find a way to attack this. And so whilst he was expressing his views, Craig, we had him behind the scenes running off to the government to have legislative correction. Mm. And, and that's the point. The, the ATO or the commissioner can interpret on the law as it is, but also many policy changes and law changes are treasury issues. So that's exactly right. There was a, two sides to the equation. One was interpretation of the law as it stood and the other one was the policy change, which um, was seen to take away these perceived advantages that it was created. Yeah, so we had the two IDs in 15 withdrawn and replaced by a practical compliance guideline. So PCG 5 of 2016, which just introduced those safe harbour arrangements in relation to LRBAs. So the tax office was actually saying, provided you can fit within these commercial sort of frameworks, I'm saying that that LRBA is okay. But, you know, that was 16. And then the government, of course, comes out with some changes to specifically legislate that the NALI, the non-arms linked income rules, will also apply where the fund incurs non-arms linked expenditure. So can you recall when they were introduced, Craig? Yes, yeah, so they were introduced uh, to take effect from 1 July 18, but, but importantly, uh, it applies to schemes beyond, before and after that application date. So the critical feature is there's no grandfathering of previous transactions. So we've just got to be uh, mindful of how that impacts on the continuum from old to new law. Yeah, and when that law was introduced, I think at the time looking at it and talking to people about it in our tax training sessions, my view was it was clearly designated to try and attempt to attack those zero funded, member funded LRBAs. In other words, if the expense is zero, the fund's not incurring an arm's length expense, mm. or if the interest is below a commercial rate. Obviously, PCG 5 of 16 was saying that if you fit within the Commissioner Safe Harbours, that must be okay, and therefore it's market value. So as long as you're within those safe harbours, I think you're okay. But with the law change, the fact that you do have a non-arms length expense, then that was really directed at those you know, member funded concessional or low rate loans. What then I suppose developed on the landscape, Craig, was the tax officer's interpretation once the law was enacted. So what did the tax office initially do? At that point, so, so as the ATO standard process is to consult first, provide drafts for, for feedback. At that point, they introduce a law companion ruling um, outlining uh, their um, in intent and, and interpretation of the law in practical commercial 
um, situations, which um, itself has created a, or at its time, created a little bit of controversy and that flows through to today. Yeah, and, and the controversy, I think, was really about not so much where the funding occurs a non-arms length expense that you can clearly relate to income being generated. So clearly where you've got a rental property and the fund does not incur arm's length expenses in relation to that rental property, then the rental income will be taxed at the penalty rates under the NALI rules. But the controversy that you mentioned, Greg, was in relation to expenses of a general nature. Mm. And the tax office in their draft law companion ruling D3 of 2019 came out with this outrageous view that a general expense such as an audit fee, an accounting fee, an administration fee, maybe um, investor advice fees, expenses of a general nature didn't relate specifically to any income of the fund. So therefore it must relate to the entire income of the fund. In other words, a non-arms length expense, not specifically connected to any particular income, but relating to all of the income would taint all of the income of the fund and therefore the entire income of that fund would bear tax at penalty rates of 47 cents in a dollar. That was a, an extreme position according to the profession. And it wasn't surprising that there was a considerable pushback against the ATO's draft view. So you could understand um, the principle of what the ATO was trying to achieve, but obviously the, the flow and effect has caused the controversy. But um, we're talking about non-arms length expenditure, so an arrangement where expenditure is either reduced or uh, there's no expenditure incurred at all, but there was clearly a service provided. Um, but the point is it interrelates with the non-arms length income rules. So you need to tag the expenditure, the non-arms length expenditure to income. So that's where the ATO says if you can't tie it to a specific asset or a specific transaction, and it's a general expense, then therefore it must flow on that it applies to all the income of the fund, statutory and ordinary, which is its disproportional approach or result that um, has been the main criticism of, of the opinion. And so in the consultation during when the draft law companion ruling was out, it's fair to say and summarise, Craig, that the uh, opinion of the tax office was not uh, agreeable within the tax community, that there um, was a a bit of controversy about it and a non-agreement? Yeah, so it certainly was. And uh, for that reason, uh, within the pack of information the, the ATO produced on the, the finalisation, they also included a compendium which sought to address some of those key issues and the ATO's response to them, which um, itself, as, as we go through and discuss it, um, some of those larger criticisms were dealt with in probably not, uh, you know, not, not, not really a foreseeable way of resolving the issue more than just explaining why uh, okay. they've continued so they've, on. So they've given some rationale for why they haven't perhaps gone with the profession's view mm. uh, and that pushback that we've been talking about. So in finalising the views of the tax office and releasing Law Companion Ruling 2 of 2021, has the tax office maintained their stance that expenses of a general nature do taint the entire income of the fund and therefore should bear tax at the penalty rates. Yes, and, and that's correct. That, that same opinion remains that you have to log or tag your non-arms expenditure to income. And if you can't separately identify 
applied to any particular transaction, then it is a general expense. So with exception, as we'll discuss with some um, minimus rules and, and inconsequential uh, rules, um, it is the basic principle that you can, in fact, have a very disproportionate approach to the fairly minor expense, which is considered to be non arm's length, could it taint the whole income of the, uh, of the fund itself. So on that point, Greg, if I, my income in my self-managed super fund is, let's say, $100,000 a year of income being generated, and I fail to charge an expense, or maybe there's a non-arm's length expense of $100, what you're saying is that disproportionality is that all the 100,000 will bear tax for a $100 mistake. Correct, correct. So, so unless you could get out on the de minimis rule, that, that's the case. It is, regardless of the level of income, it is the income is attached to the expense and the whole, whole income is, in, is captured as non-arm's length income, expense right. income. And I think it goes beyond just the income being generated. The tax office takes the view that it applies to capital acquisitions Correct, as yeah. well. Yeah, another interesting analysis of, of the ATO on that point. So, so they go, what is expenditure? And they, they obviously have to tag that to, to a principle. And they borrowed as a guide Section 8.1, good old Section 8.1, which is a revenue deduction provision. And using that um, really through a next, the, the nexus test that that provides. So the nexus to the income, um, to the expenditure. Um, so if it is within that nexus, um, then you go to the point that it's, um, it's captured. But also, as you said, Neil, um, the ATO expanded that principle to the nexus to capital assets as well. So therefore, the purchase of a property on an arm's length basis would be captured under this provision that the capital asset purchase itself, not just yeah. the expenditure. So if the fund doesn't pay full whack for their asset, that's the non-arm's length expense. So any income derived from that asset will be taxed under NALI? That is correct. And also, as um, is even more controversial, um, the disposal of that asset and any capital gains or gains made from the disposal of that asset will also be captured as non-arm's length income. And is that for all time or is there anything I can do once I've actually acquired an asset cheaper than I should have? If you acquired an asset cheap, cheaper than you should have, uh, there's a few things that would interrelate with that. But the answer is on basic principle, yes, you, you've acquired an asset under non-arm's length conditions. So I can't get out of that. That's the tax officer's position. The asset was acquired on a non-arm's length expense basis. So any income derived from that asset is now tainted for all time. That's right. Wow, that's going to cause some concerns out there. It's, it certainly will, particularly if you buy an asset today, 30 years later, you sell it. Okay, so let's take, take the away. example of our humble accountant who has their own self-managed super fund. They also have an accounting business. Um, let's call it an incorporated entity, so a company that provides accounting services. And the company itself does the work for the self-managed super fund. So we're talking about expenses of a general nature here being the accounting and the administration of the fund. So if that firm does not charge full rack rates, that would constitute a non-arms length expense? Yeah, that, that is absolutely the main concern out there. So, so accountants in particular, because obviously that's uh, where our, most of our discussions are taking place. But it goes back to that principle that, yes, if you are in the profession and you provide these services to, the, to your general client base and you have the qualifications and licensing to do that and you provide same services to your 
self-managed super fund on the ATO's testing of that, that is testing, are you acting in capacity as trustee of the fund or are you acting in your own personal capacity as a so registered tax agent? Point, I think if I'm the, the member and trustee of the fund, I can't charge a fee to my fund because I'd breached the CIS rules. And, um, Section yes. 17 of the CIS Act means that I'm prohibited from charging a fee for doing my job as trustee. Yeah, so, so if the tax office is insisting that I charge a fee, I could end up breaking the CIS Act and becoming a non-compliant fund. Now, Neil, you hit one of my, um, my topical issues on this point, and that's exactly how uh, we, in, we interrelate between the non-arms length expenditure rules and the CIS Act. And that was um, brought up as a major issue, uh, I'd say major issue with the consultation process. And that's the point that, as you rightfully say, Neil, it prohibits trustees from charging funds for providing their trustee services. So can I so, always then argue that I'm wearing my hat as the member trustee rather than my role as a practitioner in the accounting space? And, and that's that's the argument. I'm acting in capacity as trustee at all times, unless I'm outside doing my own services to my clients. So the point there being, as the ATO tries to bring it all together, is there is Section 14 of the CIS Act, which allows um, trustees to charge for services, but only in very, very limited circumstances. So it's not an open slaver saying, if you are an accountant providing services, you can charge your fees to the fund. It is don't charge your fees, don't charge the fund, unless you can fit within these specific provisions. And again, it doesn't compel somebody to a trustee to charge for their services. It gives them the ability to only in those very lim yeah. limited circumstances. Okay, so let's take some of the larger accounting firms out there. And as I understand, common practices are that those individuals take the principals, the partners, that to make sure that they're behaving in the world of tax, Often there will be a unit within, say, the big four or the, the, the big second tier firms, we'll call them partner services for want of a better word, but they insist on making sure that all their partners' tax obligations are current and up to date and so are required to get involved. In other words, the practice itself will assist in compliance activities of those individual people. And that might mean that their self-managed super funds are brought into that regime and so the practice, the accounting firm, will actually do the work of that firm. Now, what if the firm, as a policy, doesn't charge the partners for that fee? Does this cause any problems? Well, well that's, that's a very important point because, one, for the firm, as you say, for their compliance to ensure their probity as tax, registered tax agents is maintained uh, quite often. These, these larger firms do have a uh, mandatory treatment of uh, mandatory service provided being ensuring that all tax partners, um, all partners keep up to date with their compliance. So the interesting point about that is the ATO does have an out clause. So we've speak. got an out? They have an out and um, not in the context you put it in, in your wording, but it's called pro bono, which would still be providing services for free. And um, you can actually, um, there is an out clause, as I say, if the pro bono work is done um, as a matter of policy, as in software, uh, as a broad um, broad objective, as, as you've said, and also that the trustee of the fund itself can't influence or cause that pro bono policy to be invoked. Okay. As so in, if, I get, it, 
So I get that comment and what you're saying is the tax office accepts that an accounting firm, for example, can have a policy that they don't charge either the full price, so at a discounted rate that's open to everybody, universal and unilateral, or they do it for free and the tax office accepts that as long as that's across the board, they'll accept that that is okay in accordance with non-arms length expense interpretation. That's exactly right. So on those two points, the way the ATO refers to them is discounted pricing, which is consistent with normal commercial practices. So as you say, Neil, we have a 10% discount across the board for all employees um, to provide those tax agent services or tax lodgement services that is acceptable as on normal commercial practice, uh, but also on pro bono, as long as um, it is policy of the firm to do so. And the trustee has no influence on the um, the decision to provide those pro bono services, then the ATO sees that as an exclusion. Um, it's not actually treated as a non-arms length transaction. Okay, so there's a couple of escape clauses. So if the expense is not arms length, but it's okay in terms of a general policy of discounting or providing free services, and that's the general problem, and I haven't made that decision myself unilaterally, hmm. then I'll be okay. That, that's right. Okay. Is there any other out clause? I suppose the obvious one is pay for the service. Well, that's a good out clause. And in fact, that's the first point the ATA makes. Uh, if you don't want it to apply, pay for it at, at arm's length. But I guess that the challenge of that is always going to be what is the genuine price? Is it the price I'd normally charge my clients, considering I, depending on the client and depending on the service, and that could be multi tiered rates and recoveries and that. So, but, but paying for it is the best way to do it. But another question I had from another group just recently is, okay, I'm trustee of my own self-managed fund. I'm in the office, I'm working late hours. So I want to check on the investments of the fund and that. So I just jump on my computer at work. And is that itself non-arms length because part of the non-arms length expenditure is also use of equipment um, in, in the business. So we've had, there is a minor and frequent irregular use provisions or, or opinion of the ATO. So if all I'm doing is um, spending a bit of time at work on the computer, look, uh, making investment decisions and make, uh, doing a bit of self-managed fund work on that computer, as long as it is that minor and frequent irregular principle, um, it itself would not be that I'm using my business or my employer to uh, provide services to myself. Okay, because that was one of the, again, a controversial aspect of the draft law companion ruling that the use of an asset of the firm could taint the income if it wasn't paid for. Now, you mentioned being in the office late and checking your investments, but what about if I take the work laptop home and do my little self-managed super fund accounts on the work computer whilst at home? Does that get me out because I'm not at the office? Again, we're looking at, minor and frequent irregular usage. And if all I'm doing is taking, for example, as an example, I take the laptop home with me and I'm doing other work as well. And I just so happen to be involved in some self-managed super fund work. I'd imagine that would be caught as well, but you'd start to wonder if I'm very active on my self-managed fund and I'm taking the laptop home every day and spending so, hours. So when do we, when do we transgress the minor infrequent and irregular provision that the tax office accepts would not cause a tainting of the income of the fund. Yes, we, we go back to that whole principle and how it's uh, prescribed under FBT rules, for example, in uh, what is minor, infrequent, irregular will also depend on a, a, a rule of thumb. And it's always 
going to be that interesting point where you clearly yes, you clearly know, and you start to grey off in the middle. But I, I'd like to think that um, as a exception, and we don't abuse it. Hopefully, that would be enough to say that we just so happen to use the the work laptop at home on myself many fun, but it don't do it to an extent that it would ever consider to be material. Okay, so. This is just tax office view of the world, isn't it? A law companion right. ruling is the ATO view of the world. It doesn't necessarily make it right. Hmm. So what could you see as perhaps the next evolution or the next step? The tax office has put out their view in law companion ruling two of 21. It is only ATO view. They seem to have disregarded or at least countered an argument for what the profession was saying, that these interpretations went way beyond the government's policy intent. So what is the next step? What, what happens from here? There's a couple of ways of looking at it. As you said, policy intent. So legislators um, draft the law to, to reflect policy. Perhaps if it could be arguable that maybe the law isn't quite clear in the policy intent, perhaps it could be a, a law change or, um, or, or even a rethink of the ATO's view. Now, considering we've gone through a consultation process, and some of those key submissions have been addressed, but not probably to the fullest extent that, that people wanted them to be addressed. So Maybe there's an opportunity to get the ATO to have another look. Sorry, uh, Gray, do you think that's likely, though, having gone through the consultation process and finalised their LCR, do you think the ATO will revisit and put out a difference of opinion? I'm, I'm pretty sceptical that that yeah. would happen. So that's why I, I focus more on the former. And that is to, to see if we so can get... a chance to redress the provision to make yes. it crystal clear of what the government policy intent was. Mm. So do, is that would that therefore strengthen the requirement to have a direct nexus to the income being produced? It, it should do, but it, we still have this issue with the overhead expenses. As we know, it's super funds in general. Uh, we've overhead expenses, particularly when we've got segregated assets and exempt pension streams and that coming through that we have to in some way determine on the, these overheads, how they apportion back to specifics. Um, so perhaps that similar concept could. Okay, so if the ATO is not gonna change their view, if the government doesn't amend the law, is the tax office actually out and about doing any work in this area at the moment? Yeah, well, being, being an LCR, it is uh, something we could take into consideration as a risk perspective, but the ATO has, said at this stage, they're not seeking to apply audit resources um, against these transactions. But having said that, um, as it typically goes, it means they're not specifically going out there to look at it, but it doesn't mean that if it's just part of a general order or general review that they might identify potential okay, so These provisions having been enacted and effective from the 1st of July, 2018, Last year, 2020, the tax office did put out that practical compliance mm. guideline that said they would not, as you call it, apply compliance resources to look. So they're not actively going out to look for this stuff to do something about it. Yes. But what if they're looking at a fund for other reasons? Will their uh, tentacles start to intertwine and start to look at this? So they may not have specifically gone out to look for non-arms length expenses, but they're out there anyway. So will they poke around and have a look? Absolutely. Uh, it, it is the, the, the principle and does happen that um, not applying resources to look for something doesn't mean if you find it, you won't 
investigate further. So as a general audit or an audit on another specific point, uh, there's always the potential that the ATO might identify something that they need to dig a bit deeper into and um, discover a non-arms length expenditure issue. Okay, so that with that extension to the 21 years, so in other words, not until July 22 is the obvious comment from the tax office that we will not apply compliance resources to look for gnarly, non-arms length expenses, um, at least till July 22. That's not giving us a get out of jail free card until no. that day. No, that, that, that's right. We're not out of, out of jail, but what it's really there to do is allow time for restructuring, rearranging of affairs to move in to um, LCR territory. So if we've got what we believe to be non-arms length transactions, we can amend to ensure that going forward we're okay, but still we have this spectre that we haven't um, satisfied the conditions in so the past and it could come up in a general audit. I suppose the other way we could further this argument and advance the cause is if the tax office actually makes an adjustment to a super fund and does impose an assessment declaring income to be non-arms length, and let's talk about the, the entire income of a fund, that could then lead to a dispute to clarify the position through our courts. Do you think there'd be a willing volunteer to offer to be the test case? Uh, willing volunteer is probably <laughs> a bit too precise, but um, what I'd be more interested in is in the HO's test case funding program, whether they would have some room for a case of this nature uh, to pass through. And then of course it'll be identifying the, the target. And, and the tax office usually likes to run a test case that suits their um, mm. argument. So I think what we would like to see tested would be that great disparity where let's say the non-arms length expense is immaterial, let's say a hundred bucks, but it taints, you know, upwards of six figures of income of the fund. That, that's certainly the one that I would like to see as a test case to show how extreme the tax office view is. Yes, that, that, I would not want to be involved in a tech case of test case, of course. But, but if you um, if you think that you know I've I've haven't spent a hundred dollars that I should have hmm. on an audit fee or an accounting fee, and that has tainted the entire income of the fund, and the commissioner raises an assessment, I'd be willing to go to court. Yes, you certainly you certainly pushed into put into the position that you'd like to see a positive result come come out of that. Um, yeah, so that's what it's going to be about, the, the identification of the test case, testing the rules and then seeing where that flows onto. You know, if the courts um, find against a taxpayer, then uh, will that push for be a greater push to a change of policy amendment to the law? Because clearly in the scenario you put near $100 of expenditure affecting six-figure income levels is should clearly not be the impact that the intended impact of the non-arms length. Yeah, rules. and we come back to our initial points that perhaps these changes to the law would really made specifically to combat the member funded low interest limited recourse borrowing arrangements. Mm. That's the genesis behind these changes to the law. Which we thought were, were being looked after anyway. And which were the yeah. commissioner's approach was a reasonable one. And as long as you put it on a, a reasonably commercial footing in accordance with the safe harbours, you're okay. Um, what the tax officer's interpretation, particularly to general expenses, seems to go way beyond that initial mm. remit. It was clear, clear in the, the submissions made that it was 
that as the view of the professions and industry that the, 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 the policy was never intended or should never have been intended to, to go as widely as capturing general expenses against um, total income. Well, thanks very much, Craig. I think that's a, a pretty good rundown on the impact of the tax office views coming out of Law Companion Ruling 2 of 2021. I don't think the controversy has gone away. It will be interesting to see what develops next, whether it is a submission to Treasury to revisit the provisions of the Gnarly rules, whether it's a dispute, a genuine dispute that arises because of an assessment by the ATO, or as you indicated, maybe the ATO has a rethink, but I think that's at long odds. Yeah, but as you say, Neil, rightfully, it is a what's next. This is, this is not over. It hasn't, hasn't ceased. There is a, a grand swell of, um, uh, of opinions. Um, we need to just get to a final result, which might take some time, but, but this isn't the way it's going to stay, is my view. Okay, so let's stay tuned on non-arm's length expenditure or what we believe perhaps is arm's length expenditure or commercial arrangements, yet the tax office taking a different view. So thanks for listening to this episode of Tax Yak. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, you can find Tax Banter on LinkedIn and Twitter. Let us know your take on episodes or suggest future topics or speakers. You can also get onto the Tax Yak team on email podcast at taxbanter.com.au and find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and write a review of the show wherever you are. It will help to improve the profile of the show and we would love to hear your thoughts. We look forward to you joining us next time.